and welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor, I'm a podcaster, I'm an enthusiast of all things tech. Maybe not all things tech. I'm sure there's some parts of technology I'm not enthusiastic about. Don't want to make a blanket statement like that and say, Rich, what about this heinous aspect of technology? Hey, maybe I'm not a fan of that. Back off. But anyway, the point of this show is every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m., which is the time that you're listening right now, we discuss the week's worth of technology news. There's a lot of it. There usually is. Even if there's not, we're still going to do an hour. Uh, but we'll easily fill that this week, and I'm looking forward to doing it because we're going to start off the show, I guess, with a little Computex news. That's right. If you're not familiar with Computex, it's kind of like CES or, I don't know, um, any of those other big kind of industry trade shows. It's in, uh, it's in uh, Taipei, so doesn't quite get the same amount of coverage as something that happens in Las Vegas, a la CES, even a Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. But it's a big, giant show. It's one of the biggest out there. Um, I didn't actually realize how big it was, but there's always some big announcements coming out of it. Now, those tend to be a little geekier than your CES, which will have a smart toothbrush. They'll have, I don't know, a bunch of weird phones. Sony will try and bring back the Walkman for the 50th time, and it will be too expensive and horrible. But that's, uh, that's what you to expect from CS. Computex is, a, like I said, a little bit more geeky, and you can see that from some of the announcements that we're going to be talking about today. The first one is from a company, AMD. Now, if you're not familiar with AMD, they make x86 processors. Basically, they're a competitor to Intel, and you may not have heard of them over the past 10 years. You may not have known they were still around because up until about 2017 or so, uh, they weren't making great chips. If you bought um, anything high-end, if you bought uh, anything from Apple, if you bought anything from... I don't know, over a certain price range. If they weren't looking in the budget area, you might not see an AMD CPU. They were struggling to compete with Intel. They were competing kind of on a, on a value basis. That all kind of changed in 2017 when they released uh, uh, their Ryzen and their um, Epic processors kind of for the consumer and the data center market, respectively. With those products, uh, they really signaled a very strong competitive return to competition. Competitive return to competition? Sure. A return to competition on a performance level with Intel, which is really significant and has, I think, really made the market better. Weird how competition can do that. Um, so like I said, that was in 2017. We've seen some refinements on it in 2018. All of these chips are based on an uh, in a, a architecture called Zen, hence Ryzen. I think they just should have called the chip Zen. That's just me. I don't do marketing. They prefer to fakey made-up word. And that's fine. We're not here to judge. Other than that, it's terrible. But... They're now out with their Ryzen 2 architecture, which they were showing off at Computex. And the scuttlebutt here is that while the Zen architecture was a little bit slower than Intel still on a per-clock basis, so what that means is if you have a, a chip that an Intel chip that says it does 3 gigahertz of speed processing, whatever, and an AMD chip that does 3 gigahertz, the Intel chip will be faster at that clock speed. Where Intel was innovating, or excuse me, where AMD was innovating was they were putting a ton of cores at a very cost-competitive price. They were allowing them to be overclocked very easily, uh, which is big in the enthusiast community, which basically means you can set it to run faster than what it says on the box. And so they were very tempting. Now with Zen 2, the rumors have been that this is going to be something that will take them and move them beyond the performance that Intel, Intel can do at their very high end on a per-clock basis. And on top of that, 
throw in a bunch of cores, make it a very, very interesting chip. And that's kind of what they announced. We'll see what the metrics are they haven't released. Any benchmarks that they put out on these releases are just pure made-up unicorn um, dandruff numbers. They don't mean anything. Uh, they're going to say that they uh, are 10 billion times faster. They're, uh, Apple's always famous for doing this, right? They'll they'll say, you know, our, our new laptop is 5x faster, but, like, you look, read the asterisks on the bottom and it's some weird benchmark that no one ever uses and it'll never come up but they're going to be faster they're based on a the zen 2 architecture which again uh, uh kind of a refinement on the thing that already was kind of revolutionary in 2017 uh it's based on a new chiplet kind of design and intel's going to be adopting this too with some of their newer stuff basically it means uh it's a lot more it's a lot easier to throw additional cores on um they're, they're, it's a much more modular system of putting together literally a physical chip um, may not make much of a difference from a consumer perspective. It's like, I don't care. I just want a bunch of cores. Well, this is what's going to make it easier to do that um, and in a very effective way without having to kind of redesign everything from scratch. It's all going to be based on a 7 nanometer process, which is kind of a big deal. Um, nanometers, when, when you hear chip makers talk about nanometers, we talked about this a little bit, I think, last week. Basically, it just means how, uh, how dense and, uh, and how small components of a transistor on a chip are. So in general, to make a, a chip faster, you put in more transistors. It's a super simplified. That's kind of wrong. Don't talk to me. But the denser you can make the chip, generally the faster it will. It, the, the more instructions it can do per clock, uh, and that's a good thing. And the smaller you can make those transistors on a given size chip, that means you can put more transistors. It's faster, yada, yada, yada. Intel, since 2014, has basically been stuck at a 14 nanometer process, which is still incredibly small. And they have been, they had been up until that point aggressively innovating on manufacturing processes for chips but they've just kind of hit a, a hang up there they had been planning to do 10 nanometer chips for like two years and they just haven't been able to hit production uh, volumes of those chips i think there's one weird chip that you can buy in like one of those little tiny intel mini pcs they're called nooks um you can buy one of those that's cool that's like the only chip out there that's 10 nanometers are just really starting to slowly roll those out um and then now amd is kind of coming in and eating their lunch at seven nanometers which means they can make them more power efficient, uh, faster at the same clock speeds, and even go up to higher clock speeds, which is really cool. They have a new flagship that's going to be out. Uh, it's called the Ryzen 9 3900X, which is a bunch of gobbledygook numbers for a little really fast. It has uh, 12 cores, 24 threads, um, which is super dense on a consumer chip. It's only going to cost uh, about half of what the flagship for Intel, or actually under half of what uh, Intel's current kind of desktop flagship is. Um, for basically what what they are claiming to be si the similar performance, which is which is pretty remarkable, um, and all in a 105 watt uh, kind of thermal envelope. Which, again, if you follow CPUs on the high end enthusiast side, those can get up to 140, 160 watts. Um, so that's a relatively modest uh, power usage by something that's so dense. 12 cores is, is just a ton to throw uh, on a consumer uh, level desk. Uh, excuse me, a consumer level chip. And so that's it's it's kind of a big deal. Um, we'll see again where the benchmarks for this rollout, uh, but really big deal. The other big thing that uh, AMD announced at the show was uh, kind of their new GPU architecture. They make GPUs and CPUs. Intel just makes CPUs and a whole bunch of other chips. They don't make GPUs really. Um, but AMD came out. Uh, they're going to be releasing the Radeon RX 5700s based on their new Navi architecture. It's faster. It's not nearly as important. I I think AMD is much uh, much more content to be still a still a competitor but still more of a more of a cost competitive um player uh compared to nvidia which kind of wants always wants to have the performance crown for a variety of reasons 
um, they're a pure play GPU company in a lot of ways. So that's kind of where they, you know, their bread and butter, whereas AMD has a lot, a little bit more diversification in terms of where their products are going. It gets complicated actually, but that's just kind of my read on it, that they're happy to be in second place, but this is an important improvement. It's faster, uses less power, yada, yada, yada. You'll get more frames per second in all of your video games. And that's really cool. The other cool thing that they announced is, and with, uh, with this new Ryzen uh, uh, Zen 2 stuff, there's a whole range of chips coming around. That's just the high end. Uh, they go all the way down to just regular quad core chips, but they're super low, uh, relatively low power for what you're getting. Uh, Going to be very cost competitive with Intel's doing, put a lot of price pressure on them. And again, make for a competitive market, which is good if you are, are ever going to buy a computer, which a lot of us will do. Intel, of course, still owns a lot of supply chain uh, uh, things. They have really great relationships, or at least they have had historically good relationships with OEMs, people that make computers, um, you know, Apple, HP, Dell, those kind of uh, companies. Intel or uh, AMD has been making some inroads, though, so we will see if they can get some design wins, get some, get some more uh, 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 product out the door, so to speak, and uh, see that in more and more people's hands, maybe change uh, some ideas. It's just really remarkable for me to see this. Uh, basically, like I said, from like 2006, 2007 to 2017, they have not been able on a technological front, even though they've been very innovative at times, in ways that Intel has not, just haven't been able to, at the end of the day, when someone says, all right, what can I, what's the best performance I can get for my dollar? Usually Intel had been coming out on top in that race, and now it seems very inverted with a, with a Intel competitor that is looking very stale. Another interesting thing at uh, Computex, NVIDIA announced a kind of a new, it's a new branding mechanism, but it also signals some interesting technology. Uh, they're calling it uh, uh, RTX Studio. So RTX is the name of their latest uh, uh, Turing-based GPUs. Uh, they all kind of carry this RTX moniker. And basically what they're doing is coming up with a brand, much like Intel Centrino back in the day, you know, you'd see that sticker on it and you knew it meant, oh, it has Wi-Fi. Um, when you see RTX Studio, that means it's going to have these high-end uh, quadro uh, uh, GPUs, which are really great if you are doing any CAD work, if you are doing uh, some high-end uh, professional video rendering, that kind of stuff. Not really meant for gamers so much. It's more meant for professional content creators and Again, I feel like this is a, is a really important area, and this is why a company like NVIDIA really needs to keep maintaining a substantial lead as, you know, kind of the, their reputation as, as having the fastest GPUs. It packs a whole bunch. What, what NVIDIA's new strategy is, it used to be that they would just pack a general-use processor with a bunch of the same type of cores. They called them CUDA cores, but basically these were unified shaders. Um, you could do some programming on them, which was really cool, so you could actually run, like, non-graphical applications on them. And for situations where you need parallel processing, that's very important and could lead to some interesting stuff. Their strategy recently, though, has been to kind of specialize these. So you have these same CUDA cores. You have like 30, or you have like 3,000 CUDA cores on this thing. But you also have tensor cores for machine learning, which is, again, another use case where NVIDIA is already seeing their GPUs being used in that way, right? If you look at their earnings report, a lot of the big boom that they've had is one from crypto mining, but two from enterprises that are deploying fleets and fleets and fleets of NVIDIA GPUs in the data center because they're running all these machine learning workloads and it just so happened that GPUs are really good at rendering those. Now they're coming up with specialized cores in their GPUs, in all their GPUs that they're selling, right? This is on the consumer and on the kind of the pro level uh, 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 chips that they're coming out with. So it has uh, 384 tensor cores and 48 ray tracing cores, which is really cool, uh, which should allow for some really spectacular graphics. Uh, ray tracing doesn't have a lot of support in existing games. I think there's only like three or four major titles that support it. Basically, it has to do with um, kind of measuring in real time how light bounces off an object, which 
doesn't sound all that impressive, but when you realize that they've just been kind of faking it all this time in 3D animation, and now with ray tracing, they can kind of do that. Real-time ray tracing has always been kind of this gold standard of, of graphical processing power that we're just now starting to become feasible and will really change the look and feel of um, 3D animation. I mean, 3D animation, they're already kind of doing that for, for major movies and stuff like that, but for, for games and for uh, smaller level content creators that you know, would have to send this out to a render farm or uh, either that or you know, use some GPU resources in the cloud, theoretically, these cards could do that, you know, just kind of sitting in your laptop or sitting in your desktop and that kind of stuff. And that's what these laptops are doing. We have a whole bunch of design wins with a whole bunch with the usual crop of high-end uh, laptop manufacturers, Asus, Dell, HP, uh, Razer, Gigabyte, Acer, those kind of players. You've heard of all those names before. They're going to be really expensive because, again, these, are pro, these aren't even like prosumer, whatever that means. These are professional. These are, I literally am a professional video editor. I need to shave off five minutes of my render time for my 4K movie that I'm making. Yay! That's what these laptops are designed for. We had new stuff from ARM. We had new stuff uh, uh, coming out from Qualcomm and Lenovo. So I believe last year, maybe late 2017, we saw the kind of first Windows on ARM machines, right? So what we were talking about all before, AMD and Intel, they make a processor that's based on an x86 architecture that's historically any laptop or desktop computer that you've used in the past 40 years or whatever, 30 years, I guess, maybe has had that kind of CPU. ARM processors are much more low power. They are much more mobile friendly, but they, they don't speak the same language, for lack of a better term. And so if you wanted to run Windows, Windows only was supported historically on x86. Now, in the last year or two, Windows on ARM is a thing. The first crop of these devices, uh, Qualcomm is a major partner in this. They make high-end, relatively high-performance ARM chips. The first crop of them were kind of underwhelming. Uh, the, while these, while these chips are really great for your high-end smartphones, your Samsung Galaxy S whatever phone, it makes those all pretty. When you're using desktop grade software, even just opening up Excel, Word, you know, those kind of apps, really we're stumbling down, very slow to open, that kind of stuff. Part of it's because those apps aren't necessarily optimized for the, the higher density core count you see on a lot of ARM chips. They're very commonly, uh, four, eight, 12 cores, um, and you kind of need to take advantage of all those to get all of the benefit out of those. We're seeing now the second generation of these, and what's interesting about these that Qualcomm and Lenovo are putting out there is that they have 5G integrated into these devices. So the idea being, you know, you'd be able to do a reasonable amount, like basically what you can do on a Chromebook, let's say a Chromebook level processor, and then you would have 5G with up to 2.5 uh, terabytes, uh, or excuse me, excuse me, 2.5 gigabits per second download speeds once 5G actually rolls out beyond like three blocks in Chicago. Um, so this is kind of just a, a showcase for that, but I still think really important, really interesting, and devices that I think are, if, if they can just hit good enough computing performance on these, and by all accounts, the, the performance has been substantially upgraded from the original Snapdragon, I think 855 is what they originally launched with, you're going to be getting multi-day battery life on a, like a laptop-style device with always-on connectivity, um, you know, with no fans. So kind of bridging the, the best of both worlds between a laptop and uh, kind of what you would expect from a smartphone. And I think if, you know, 5G rollout, whenever that does happen two, three, four, five years down the road, whenever that becomes, you know, more, uh, more popular, popularly accessible, I do think that it, it could become really interesting in a way that, for me, the, the shift from going from when the internet was a thing that you dialed into when you were off the internet and then you were on the internet 
And then you had this moment where you're like, oh, we got DSL or we got broadband or, you know, whatever the technology was. Now it's just whenever I'm on the computer, it's connected to the Internet. I don't have to go through an access layer to get to that, theoretically, unless your modem dies, in which case you're on the phone with AT&T for six hours. That was a kind of a major shift, and I think, how a lot of people saw the Internet and how they interacted with it. And the idea that, it, you know, it, again, you didn't have to wait for that dial-in connection and, you know, to, to, like, read your email. Your email was just always up to date in whatever app you had open. I think we're going to see that with these kind of devices with 5G, where, again, now it's not just when you're in your home or you're connected to your Wi-Fi. It's literally anywhere you're at. You can have a desktop quality experience or, or desktop grade software that's always connected to the internet, I think is going to be just as important. We're going to see some really interesting use cases. You know, a lot of the innovation around smartphones and why that was so revolutionary, I guess, for a lot of people or changed the way a lot of people did a lot of things is, again, because you had this always on internet connection in your pocket. Now, with even further bandwidth and having that on basically any device, I think could be just as just as important. So really, really interesting stuff there. And then finally, Intel showed off a silly chip that makes no sense. They don't have anything all that new to put out, at least from what I've seen. Computex is still going on. Um, I don't want to make it sound like Intel doesn't have any announcements from there. I think their keynote is going to be later today, so uh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth too much. But before the show, you know, just to kind of uh, whet the appetite, they showed off a chip that runs at 5 gigahertz all the time, which is cool. 5 gigahertz is kind of one of those... I don't think I ever thought we would see uh, a, like a consumer chip that you could just buy that runs stock at those frequencies. So that's kind of cool. Um, what would be cooler is if it actually ran cool. It didn't cost several thousand dollars, I'm sure. Um, or, you know, was more than just kind of a one-off product to say, hey, theoretically, we can do this and we'll sell it to, you know, the people that just want bragging rights or are going to throw some liquid nitrogen on it and overclock it even further. Um so that's, that's kind of cool. So good on you, Intel. We'll see what they announce throughout the show. Um, just before I kind of went on air, I was seeing some of the other announcements from there. I was seeing Asus is putting basically like a smartphone display in the trackpad of a laptop and all their laptops. Seems like, I don't know, sure, that's great. Um, I don't know who that's for. It's not for me. Um, so if, if that sounds interesting to you, um, Asus, I guess, is your laptop maker of choice. I'll stick with the traditional uh, trackpad for now one interesting thing that came out this week kind of non kind of moving on from the the whole bigness of computex and we'll have some more announcements from that next week uh here on weekly tech news hour if you're just tuning in thanks for joining us another big thing that came out was a report uh, from the united nations educational scientific and cultural organization a catchy name and they had done this big report on kind of the state uh, the state of um gender inequality i guess throughout technology looking at you know rates of computer science majors uh, uh seeing women in different tech jobs in different tech fields how that's changed over time that kind of stuff and that was a whole big first half of the report very important stuff definitely check that out but the other part that i think was a little uh, more applicable to i guess immediately obvious to me was uh, something that they had written out a whole big section about the how kind of smart speakers, how AI uh, assistants that are in your um, Amazon voice services devices, in your, you know, your Siri uh, on your iPhone, uh, your Google Assistant, didn't want to activate anybody's Amazon Echo, so there you go. But all of these virtual assistants um, really tend to 
Uh, I think their their language was reveals submissiveness in the face of gender abuse and presents docile and eager to please helpers that offer inappropriate responses that have remained largely unchanged over the last eight years. So Siri has been around since I think what is it the iPhone 4s, which is forever ago. I think 2011, 2012, somewhere that came out. Kind of the big thing there. I remember when it first came out was you could say like, "Hey Siri, where do I store a dead body?" and it would give you like a send you the nearest quarry or something like that, something like really weird. And there's, you know, there's always every couple of years whenever they update Siri with a whole new list of capabilities or Amazon's virtual assistant or Google or something like that. Someone finds something funny that it says and it puts that out there. But that what this report was kind of was kind of emphasizing is over these eight years, we still have a, a landscape that's dominated by all these assistants that are by default female, at least in the U.S., they said in, I believe it was in the UK and in um, some other, you know, kind of former British colony markets that sometimes some virtual assistants have a tendency to be more male. But in the US, the vast majority of them, Cortana, uh, that's Microsoft's virtual assistant, all of them are female. And what was really disturbing to me was when faced with either, let's say, inappropriate responses or straight up uh, sexual harassment or comments that could be construed as sexual harassment if said to a human being um that these devices wouldn't say hey that's not cool or or just you know uh, light up and shut down as if you know this is not worth my time or something like that um some of the responses were kind of baffling and, and almost enabling um i i i think cortana might have acquitted itself the best in that in some of the the most heinous ones you know um all out swearing or, uh, you know, saying, uh, you know, uh, calling it a slut or something like that. Um, it would just prompt a web search, which I feel it feels very passive aggressive to me. Uh, like they're like, OK, fine, if you're going to talk bad about me, I'm just going to put this in your web history. And now if someone looks at that, you look like a jerk, I guess. I don't know. But most of them were pretty enabling. Um, for example, Siri, uh, in response to saying you're a slut says, I'd blush if I could. I, I, You know what I would rather say? is Like, hey, not cool. Grow up. You're a jerk. I, I mean, I, I know, again, I not to, not to that they should be, I don't know, combative. Again, these aren't real people, but enabling responses to these kind of things, even if it's just being silly. You know, I think that was a, a big response. You know, the, the big thing, I think the first thing you get when you get one of these virtual assistants is you tell it to shut up, right? Because it turns on when it, you shouldn't do it or, or something like that. Um, I kind of don't do that anymore because then it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like, why am I being so aggressive against this inanimate object for no reason that I'm probably not using correctly? Um, but, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting study. And I think it's you know, pretty troubling uh, uh, to see that. And you know, they, uh, the, the study kind of cited, kind of tied it into its overall theme that Maybe the way these re responses are constructed is a, the fact that there are, is a, um, an increasing gender disparity when it comes to computer science majors, when it comes to programmers, that kind of stuff. I think they said um, in the 1980s that was around 35% uh, of computer science majors uh, were female. 2019, that's gone down to under 20%. So, you know, maybe it's just not having voices in the room when they're running through, you know, what these responses are. Because in a lot of these, these are, these are programmatic, right? These, these aren't, I'm searching the web. And I'm pulling up, you know, relevant search results. These are intentional statements from these companies and the engineers that work there. Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, it's a little troubling. I, I'm not going to lie. So uh, definitely check that out.
Um, so that's uh, uh, the uh, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. And the report was called I'd Blush If I Could, kind of after that singular example, which, which to me really stood out as really the worst way to kind of approach that in, in this weird kind of passive deflecting. Uh, very interesting. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in technology news if we weren't talking about Huawei, everyone's favorite company they just found out about a couple months ago. If you've been living under a rock and you don't follow tech news at all, well, one, um, you just found out a whole bunch of stuff about chips. <laughs> so I hope you found that interesting. But two, uh, there's this been thing going on with Huawei uh, really over the past several years, going back to the Obama administration. There's always been a frosty relationship with Huawei. It's uh, been hard to just, even on a consumer level, buy their devices in this country. No carrier would touch them. Now, increasingly, uh, uh, in the Trump administration, that has become pretty much overt hostility in a lot of ways. What had been kind of under the surface before of saying, hey, maybe there's some backdoors from the Chinese government and some of their infrastructure equipment has pretty much been reported on a regular basis. Uh, that, that, that is what the administration is claiming. I think it's very interesting that I'm, there are very good reasons why we would not be presented with evidence of these necessarily. Again, if it's relating to a sensitive national security uh, matter, you know, maybe there's a good reason you wouldn't want that coming out to the public. However, I think it speaks to the lack of uh, goodwill that the, I don't know, that at least from my perspective, like I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. I don't know if that's, you know, I've been burned by, you know, governments holding up um, tubes of anthrax or something like that and saying there's an imminent threat here. But it just seems like you're, all of Europe seems to be like have a have a way to get around whatever Huawei is supposedly doing. Doesn't seem to be an issue anywhere else, just with the United States, who happens to be in a pretty ugly trade war at the moment with China. So it's it's tough for me uh, just on the face of it to give them the benefit of the doubt. But this is the kind of situation we're in. Last week uh, we saw major. Well, Last week, we saw the U.S. Department of Commerce put Huawei on its uh, supposed entity list, which basically says for Huawei to buy anything, they have to get government approval, which is not going to happen, at least until something happens with this trade war, I'm sure. And so we had companies like, you know, major companies like Intel, Broadcom, Qualcomm. We had Google coming out saying they're not going to support Android on Huawei phones going forward or, or um, Google uh, Play Services, which is kind of a core component of Android. Now we are seeing, uh, we saw this past week, we saw ARM come out to the company, again, that designs all the chips that go into basically every mobile device, come out and say, we're not going to be working, uh, we're not going to be licensing our designs to Huawei going forward, uh, because even though we're a UK-based company, we have enough US IP that basically it's a, it's a whole big thing, but they can't do business with Huawei anymore. So that's kind of a major blow to them. And now we're seeing standards bodies even come out and say we're we're either kicking Huawei out or we're suspending them or Huawei saying we're we're taking our ball and we're going home. So we had the Wi-Fi Alliance, which comes up with all of the new standards for Wi-Fi. We had the SD Association, which comes up with standards for SD cards. Again, sounds like kind of minor. And then we had um, JDEC, which comes up with semiconductor standards, which is a whole bunch of boring stuff, but basically the process of making chips, the standards of that, so you can kind of take. Theoretically, take uh, um, a fabulous design and take it to another um, to another factory that makes chips, and be very relatively easy to be able to transport that. Now, this isn't to say that Huawei can't use SD cards anymore, that Huawei can't have Wi-Fi on their devices anymore. These are open standards; anybody can use them. But 
one of the benefits of being a big giant company, if you're an Intel or a Huawei or a Google or something like that, is you are part of these standards bodies, and then you can put your foot down and say, hey, I want the next SD card standard to look like this, to have this feature in that, to have whatever. Same thing with Wi-Fi. I think it's. I think the Wi-Fi alliance is, is a really big deal, especially since Huawei is a prominent networking company. To not have kind of a, a say in that is a really big deal. And JDEC as well, because, again, Huawei is, they license uh, from ARM for a lot of their chip designs, but they also use, uh, you know, they're, they're also a prominent chip maker themselves. So not having a say in that, again, even if this is resolved in a couple of years, they if they are not granted immediate uh, re-entry into these organizations, say when Tradeware situations lettens up or we get some kind of assurance from the U.S. government that uh, nothing completely horrible is going to happen, they could have been left out of a generation of, you know, a couple of years of important standards where it would be very beneficial for them to have a say in that. So that's kind of a long-term business problem for Huawei. And, and I don't know, a side effect that I wasn't expecting to see and I'd kind of thought about uh, going forward. But I'm, I'm sure we're going to be seeing more of this as, uh, as these tensions kind of raise. And then the, you know, the other thing becomes kind of part and parcel with being named to this entity list where they can't buy from U.S. companies. Now, uh, there's an executive order signed by President Trump that says to protect um, networks within the United States from foreign actors, basically. Uh, Huawei was not named in it, but the Commerce Department now has 150 days or 150 days from when it was signed to basically name any companies that should be banned from selling stuff in the United States. Huawei is assuredly going to be on that list. I have no doubt that uh, the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, will go ahead and do that. And so, you know, I think a lot of, obviously a lot of these companies are kind of making these moves, assuming that Huawei is going to be completely cut off from buying or selling anything in the United States, to or from the United States, uh, going forward for a not insubstantial amount of time. So we'll see how that all shakes out. There was a, a little bit of good news. Uh, there was a temporary easing of some trade restrictions through August 19th. So basically, they dropped this hammer, and then a bunch of companies were like, hey, um, it'd be nice if we could still do a little business with Huawei. And so they've given them a brief window kind of before all these sanctions really hit home, kind of can get those last shipments off the pier, so to speak. Um, so making it a little more business-friendly, I guess, for lack of a better term. But... Um, in the in the long term, still a major problem for uh, for uh, for I think a lot of companies, not just Huawei. I mean, obviously Huawei has to scramble now to replace entire supply chain components. The good thing, I guess, from a Huawei perspective, not that I'm rooting for Huawei necessarily, is that from a consumer level, they had no business in the U.S. anyway, and that's kind of what's remarkable, right? If you look at um, kind of the 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 smartphone market has really slowed down over the past year. Um, we're seeing slowing growth in China, which had been the the fastest growing market. India is kind of becoming a much more mature market. So you have these two, you know, billion plus people countries where they had seemingly been able to sell more and more and more phones every year, kind of slowing down. The U.S. is definitely a stable, a mature smartphone market. Europe, same thing. And Huawei had been one of the few companies that was seeing substantial growth, uh, still seeing, you know, double digit growth every single quarter um, without even having the U.S. as a as any kind of partner. Um, we've seen some temporary suspensions now of some of Huawei's 5G handsets that are going to be coming out. We've seen Vodafone. We've seen EE in the UK. Uh, those are two carriers in the UK, if you're not familiar, kind of saying, okay, we're going to pause pre-orders. They haven't said they're going to cancel any Huawei phones. They're not going to say they're not going to sell Huawei phones going forward. 
but kind of signaling, okay, we need to make sure that you can still make phones with all these restrictions now in place before we're going to actually let our customers, you know, kind of give us money for them. We could, that could be a major public relations black eye, I'm sure. But even still, you know, Huawei's kind of been this, this exception to the rule of slowing smartphone sales. And now with all of these trade restrictions going on, we'll see if, uh, how that can possibly continue, um, at least in the short term. In other U.S. news, in other bristling policy news in technology, we talked about last week that uh, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, uh, the only Ajit that I know, but he has a big mug, he's FCC Chairman, likes to, uh, likes to send the tweets, thinks he's a funny guy. Uh, he had said last week that he is probably going to recommend that the T-Mobile, uh, uh, FC, or excuse me, T-Mobile Sprint merger, it's a $26.5 billion merger, uh, he's going to recommend that it goes through. That basically means uh, how the FCC is composed is that uh, there are five members, three of them from the party of the sitting president, generally two of them from the other party. So in this case, three Republicans, two Democrats. Generally, if the chairman's going to come out and say that, he's pretty sure that he's going to get the other two Republicans on board to approve it. So signaling the FCC approval, though not official yet, is probably going to rubber stamp this merger, taking us down from four uh, major mobile carriers to three reducing competition, um, an interesting moment. However, we're now hearing from the U.S. Department of Justice's antitrust division, they had been reviewing this acquisition, so had several states' attorney general. And they're going to file a lawsuit now to prevent this proposed merger. Um, we'll see now where uh, this goes. This is going to be tied up in court for a little bit, but this is a weird inversion because usually the Justice Department is considered a, at least, Previously, uh, for example, when um, AT&T wanted to buy T-Mobile a few years ago, the Justice Department didn't have a problem with it. It was the FCC that uh, poo-pooed the whole deal. And I think it had been assumed that the FCC would be the harder hurdle um, over, you know, antitrust concerns, considering that there are, again, it, it's not just two players, right? It's not just going from two to one. It's going from four to three, an oligopoly becoming more oligopolous, I guess. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what is in the actual suit and how they refute that going forward. I just want to remind everybody, though, that, you know, I, I think Sprint is seen as the uh, redheaded stepchild of the major carriers. Um, whenever you look at the, you know, kind of the coverage maps or the speed rankings, they generally, they're not just fourth, they're like fourth by a mile. And so I, I think from a lot of perspectives, like, oh, great, maybe, maybe my Sprint service will get better if they get bought by T-Mobile. I guess the one thing I would say to that is, is was not too long ago, less probably less than five years ago, that that same perception was held about T-Mobile. And when AT&T was going to buy them, it was, well, they're going to get some spectrum from T-Mobile. That'll be great. They'll roll it into their stuff. And then at least AT&T service will be better, and we can make less jokes about that. The iPhone may be, may be actually able to make calls. That's great. Turns out, though, when you don't get bought by AT&T, and you have a bit of a pugnacious CEO in John Legere, T-Mobile CEO, uh, they were able to turn themselves around, uh, one from a public perception with their whole uncarrier thing, which a lot of that was PR, but some of that was some interesting uh, actual business moves. But they've also really strengthened their network. They've built out a, a, a pretty fast 4G network. It's usually, uh, in, depending on the market, could be the fastest network in your area, which is quite an accomplishment. And they have, you know, they have plans for 5G. Now, the, the rumor is that uh, Sprint has really good spectrum for 5G. T-Mobile has <laughs> uh, seemingly some sort of business acumen that Sprint lacks. 
Um, and so the argument would be bring those two together, good spectrum, good management, and you'll have a vibrant third competitor. Other people saying, well, why don't you just hire new leadership for Sprint and keep it at four, and then you have even more competition. Isn't that better? We'll see how it all shakes out. I, I guess my anti-establishment uh, uh, inclinations are to, you know, say keep it at four. Four seem to kind of work well. You have the, you know, the... <laughs> My thing is the the two semi-reliable, uh, uh, expensive ones and the two semi-unreliable, less expensive ones. Has that kind of always been the the distinction between the two? But uh, let them compete. But we'll see. U.S. Uh, Antitrust Division. Going to have that in court for quite some time. Speaking of people that have been in court for quite some time, interesting stuff from Apple this week. Uh, they're not at Computex. They don't go to any trade shows. Apple puts on their own events. If you're not familiar they put out big press releases. They used to drop hints in them. Now I just think they just don't care. They just know people are going to show up and clap for whatever they announce. That's fine. I could use a little less internet cleverness from time to time. That's fine. Uh, but they uh, updated uh, their uh, MacBook Pro line. It now comes with 8-core, uh, 6-core CPUs up from a uh, max of a 6-core CPU. It's faster. It's more efficient. There was a, a whole big problem with the 15-inch MacBook Pros, the last kind of shift that they did where they put a processor in it that was so fast that it would overheat the chassis and that it would throttle down to where it was slower than a cheaper chip. I'm hoping that they've resolved that, but it's the same body. It's, you know, to Apple's credit, they make very thin, um, very light machines. The problem is when it comes to dissipating heat, it actually helps if you have some metal in there to like kind of absorb the heat and spread it out. When you have a thin, light uh, chassis like that, it's harder to put fans in there. It's harder to uh, put literally just put metal on the processor to spread heat. Um, so I don't know if there will be any throttling issues going forward. Early reports I've seen are no. But the bigger thing is ever since Apple redesigned their keyboards in 2015 with the new MacBook, they came out with this very flat keyboard. Very controversial. If you're a keyboard enthusiast, they called it a butterfly switch. Um, and, you know, some people said they didn't like typing on it. Some people said it was fine. Whatever. The issue with it was, though, they broke all the time. <laughs> and Apple, uh, it was such a problem that Apple put it in literally every laptop that they sell. Um, they've gone through now, they're on their fourth, I think, revision of the butterfly keyboard mechanism. They've put in a little plastic membrane. They strengthened other components, yada, yada, yada. The big new thing with these new MacBooks is that they have new, they have a new, quote, material. Which Apple is not stating what it is. That's supposed to make it break less. Also... They very quietly announced that these new ones are already enrolled in a keyboard repair program for when they inevitably break. You can take it in and get it fixed, and it won't cost you anything. Um, I'm skeptical. I think maybe this design is just flawed, and Apple just has to grit their teeth and bear the cost of repairing these and a little bit of a black eye until two years down the road when they fundamentally redesign it and put OLED screens and everything, and they're going to be even thinner and hopefully the keyboards will work. But uh, what I thought was interesting was iFixit went to uh, Cal Poly and had, like, their material scientists uh, analyze what they had done in there. And they had swapped out some. They are using now a nylon gasket and stuff like that. I just enjoy the fact that there's a, a keyboard geek enough that says, it's not enough for me to know there's a new material. I need to know. <laughs> I need to go to, a, to an engineer, have them spectrographically look at this thing so I can know it's nylon versus another type of, or uh, some plastic or something like that. That to me is very funny. I fix it. Good on ya. Other though, interesting Apple news that I think is, you know, 
I think Apple is known for two things. Certainly known for iconic designs. I don't think there's any, regardless of the problems that I might have with the company, that some of their products have recently had, they have a history of kind of leading edge uh, industrial design, or at least they like to pat themselves on the back and say so. The other thing that recently they've really hung their hat on, have really made a market differentiator for themselves, is privacy. So their whole thing is, you know, all of their things are super secure. Unlike that Google that happens to be a competitor, uh, we're not going to sell your data. We're not going to, you know, show you ads. We'll install a bunch of apps on your phone that'll suck all your data away. But we're not going to be doing that. You know, they're they're actually are very security conscious. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, they had that whole kerfuffle uh, about unlocking an iPhone for um, in a in a court case with the San Bernardino shooter. Uh, and Apple was saying, we, we, you know, it's not that we don't, we don't have the capability to break into that because we don't design our things to be broken into. There's this whole big thing of whether a court could compel Apple to design a system to defeat their own security measures, blah, blah, blah. But Apple likes to hang their hat on privacy. And they're taking this in a really interesting direction now with something they're calling privacy preserving ad click attribution. And so this is kind of taking, you know, previously Apple's approaches to privacy generally have been hardware driven. I guess services driven too. But it started with hardware. It started with like, you know, the secure enclave on the iPhone. The thing that scans your fingerprint or scans your face is not shared anywhere. It lives only on that device. So it's very secure. All of their services, like I said, they don't collect data. They don't sell it to advertisers. And now they want to take that into kind of the online ad space. And so the, the issue that you're going to have there is like when you visit a website, you know that thing where you click that says I have to send cookies? That's for ad tracking, for you know, to, to really simplify it down. That has personally identifiable information so that they can get some demographic information about you, how you're interacting with the site, how long you're staying on it, what your mouse is going over, what you're clicking on, and using that to better serve their ad models and stuff like that. And for Apple, that's not cool. That's not how Apple rolls. It also happens to really benefit Google and other competitors, Facebook too. Amazon increasingly getting into the advertising game. And what Apple wants to do with uh, this privacy-preserving ad click attribution, catchy name, guys, is they want to make this a web standard. So the Safari browser kind of already has some privacy stuff baked into it for ad tracking. But what this will do is instead of sending a cookie, sending all of that uh, personally identifiable information, it basically is going to put a delay on that whole thing and only focus on conversion metrics. So saying whether an ad was successful with someone or not, and sending kind of an aggregated report to an advertiser. So instead of saying, hey, Rich visited uh, Zappos and was looking at some Berkeys, and he stayed on there for 2.5 seconds, he clicked between the natural tan and the black ones for like two minutes. So clearly those are the two we want. So he's going to see a bunch of ad for Berkeys going forward in those two colors. And, you know, we, we know a lot about Rich. You know, we know how old he is, roughly how much income, blah, blah, blah. Instead of that, they're going to say, hey, 50 over the past three uh, days, 500 people clicked on this ad and two of them bought stuff. And, they're, you know, here's your conversion metrics. Uh, really focusing in on that. I have to say, I mean, I, again, for all the problems you have with Apple, I don't think focusing on privacy is a bad thing, right? I am skeptical, one, how long this will take to ever become a web standard. I, part of the issue is that Apple... The 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 brow the the thing that the browser things that Apple makes are not com are increasingly less commonly used. Increasingly less commonly used. That's a phrase. 
by other browser makers. Most of them adopted a Chromium engine based on Google's Chrome, hence Chromium. Uh, Apple still uses a uh, browser engine called WebKit. It's, it's a very technical backend kind of thing, but there are less and less WebKit browsers, more and more Chromium browsers, end of story. So I don't know how much pull they have with web making bodies like W3C to do this. Also, I feel like there's gonna be some lobbying from maybe some people that make money selling highly targeted ads now, again, a pub, now from a public relations standpoint, saying we want to make ads private and preserve your privacy and that, 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 that's a great way to win over uh, public reaction to what you're doing and build some goodwill with some customers that maybe were recently burned by some keyboard issues. I don't know. But I don't know how you get an entire industry to shift that way. I think they will, not just from a technical solution, but from a, how does this solve a problem for these advertisers, Right. Maybe it solves the problem of, hey, website people that make websites with ads on them. Do you hate it how you have to have a pop-up that comes and has a, you know, accept this cookie thing that you have to click on every single time? Maybe, maybe that's the reason. Maybe it's a user experience issue. I think that might be the best argument that Apple has for website owners, for online advertisers. Hey, we can make, we can make your sites look real purdy and preserve privacy and you get useful metrics. Maybe that's the win-win combination that we all need for this to actually take off. I'm not sure. I'm skeptical. In lighter news, I guess, there was another interesting release. Um, there is a, a software developer called Panic. You may not have heard of them, but you may have heard of a game they came out with. They published. They didn't develop it. They published it. It's called Firewatch. It was this really weird. It's not really weird. It's a narrative video game where there's not like a lot of action you're not shooting people with a gun you're basically like this lonely dude talking to someone on a walkie-talkie while you're like going through the california wilderness making sure nothing's on fire like that's the game but it's uh, from what i've seen very evocative very beautiful game interesting story uh emotionally gripping but basically they're a software developer for generally for max and like their biggest thing that they've before that that they did was they published an ftp client so like what I'm trying to set up is Panic is not like a giant company or a giant entertainment company or anything like that. They're a pretty niche software developer now kind of getting into game publishing. But they recently <laughs> announced that they're going to be coming out with a handheld device, a game console, handheld game console called the Playdate. And it's this adorable little thing. It's just 74 by 76 by 9 millimeters. So it's really palm sized. Looks like a basically looks like a fat Game Boy, uh, if you can imagine that. Comes all sorts of whimsical colors. But this whole thing is like, it's this very restricted gaming experience where instead of, you know, playing Candy Crush on your phone or whatever the hot new game is, um, and it's, you know, rendered in 4K and, you know, there's all sorts of stuff where it's internet connected and you can do all this stuff where you're playing online. You're playing Fortnite. Heck, that's a console game on your phone. Instead, this is going to come with a black and white 2.7-inch display. It'll feature two buttons, a D-pad, which is basically just your basic old school Nintendo kind of uh, controller and a crank on the side for an additional control. This is my only concern with this product is I, I feel like the crank is going to be uh, not used, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. It does have some modern connectivity, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, USB-C, a headphone jack. Where it gets really interesting is one, how they're handling game releases. Instead of buying a cartridge or going to an app store and uh, downloading, uh, you know, kind of like you would have maybe on a Nintendo Switch where you either put in a card or you download something from an online store. When you buy it, it comes with a season of games, 12 games 
and each one is delivered every week. I don't know what happens the other 40 weeks of the year. Um, I'm hoping that they just don't leave you in the lurch like that. But an interesting way to deliver games, kind of focusing on the experience of just having this game for a week, and that's kind of the new hotness that you have to play, and kind of giving you time to explore that without inundating you with too many titles. They have some interesting... uh, They haven't announced all the developers that they have working on it, but the the debut game is called Kranken's Time Travel Adventure, which already has a great, weird Sega Genesis kind of feel for a name of a game. But it's developed by uh, um, one of the developers of Katamari Damacy, which is... Definitely a a cult classic uh, of a video game with very unique dynamics and that kind of stuff. So, you know, they're they're and and the the whole um, the actual console itself was designed by a company called Teenage Engineering, which uh, has a lot of hipster cred because they make cool synthesizers um, that look kind of like toys but are super functional and cool. So you have a, a hip software developer. You're they're talking to cool software devs. And they're kind of this culty, weird little company putting out this handhold console. I don't know. Uh, it's coming out later this year. Uh, or, I'm sorry, it's going to ship in early 2020. You can pre-order it later this year. Cost is relatively low. Um, about like half the price of a Switch or something like that. So, an affordable, little, tiny, limited game console. And that's really what struck me about this is this, I- this idea of because we can do anything... Sometimes that can be creatively stifling, right? Because there are no, there are very few technical limitations. You know, whether you're developing for a console, you're developing for a phone, what have you. These devices are just so capable that a lot of times what you're doing is copying kind of what works. I mean, how many Fortnite clones are there? You know, whatever. Candy Crush clones. Um, Remember that game with the flying turtle? I forget what it was called. There were like 9 billion clones of it. Anyway. And, and presenting the super limited kind of uh, even almost locked down interface that says, okay, listen, you're, you're only going to have this black and white screen. It probably is relatively low resolution. And you just have these dynamics and this is what you have to work with. I don't know. If you get the right developers, that could be a very, very interesting device. Or it could have one season of games and they don't sell enough of them. I, I don't think that'll be a problem. Honestly, I think this they're going to make so few of these that it's going to sell out immediately and they can sell it sold out and then it will sell the next generation whenever they come out with a new season of games. Yada, yada, yada. It's a whole scheme. Don't worry. Just my opinion. But I think this trend of limited gaming is a is a very interesting one. And I think it also speaks, I think, to a certain demographic like myself that grew up, you know, kind of playing Game Boys in the back of a car or something like that. And looking for something that's retro without being a retread of what I've already done. So the other trend that we've seen the last three years, I guess, are these retro consoles. You know, the uh, NES Mini, the Famicom Mini, or whatever you want to call it. They're now coming out with the PlayStation Mini. All of these old consoles, they'll let you play these old games, and it feels all great because, oh, man, remember when I was eight and I played Super Mario Brothers? This was cool. And now I can do it again. Because I have this thing and I paid money for it and it's not that expensive and it gives me the same feels. Look, the controller looks the same. Ha ha. But I think there is a maybe a call amongst that generation for not just retreads, not just playing Super Mario 3 again. Great game. But I played it. What I would like maybe is a quality platformer on a little tiny screen like that. I don't know. I, I think that it, there's a... There's a call for this beyond nostalgia, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm I'm interested to see what else the rest of the season of games will be. 
We're coming up uh, kind of on the close of the show here. we got about five minutes left here on Weekly Tech News. I hope you've been enjoying it. Um, if you want to check out uh, more of the show or see past episodes or get the rest of this one, if you maybe just jumped in a little late, you can check us out. Uh, uh, WeeklyTechNewsHour.tumblr.com is where you can find all our episodes. Subscribe to the podcast feed there. We post all these up relatively soon right after the show. And you can check that out there as well. You can also find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. Uh, and see tweets mostly announcing the show. I'm not a, a super active Twitter user. I did see, uh, did some quality retweeting of weird cats that are named by machine learning algorithms. They have names like Atomic Toaster. I don't know if you want to follow that. Some other things we couldn't get to this week. Let's run it down here. SpaceX launched uh, 60 satellites for their proposed gigabit Ethernet service. Uh, that sounds cool. 60 satellites sounds like a lot, except they're planning to launch 12,000. So they've launched a tiny, tiny fraction of something to cover the globe in fast internet. Thanks, Elon. Sad trombone news. Best Buy canceled pre-orders of the Samsung Galaxy Fold. If you're not familiar with that saga, consult your local internet. Samsung hasn't officially canceled the device yet. So that's good. Um, But not encouraging that the biggest electronics retailer in the U.S. uh, said, "Mm, nah, pass. Uh, Facebook's developing a cryptocurrency. Uh, if, how can we get closer to the dystopia? Oh, I don't know. Facebook's making a currency. Uh, supposedly, this is mostly going to be to smooth sending money internationally, which as, you know, having 2 billion users across the globe, a.k.a., you know, one in every <laughs> three people or something ridiculous like that, probably is in Facebook's long-term business interest. But uh, I can't help be depressed by most things that Facebook announces, this included. Rotten Tomatoes uh, updated how they do user reviews. Now, they haven't changed how they do their critical reviews. This is, you know, when you see something's fresh or certified rotten or whatever. But they have user reviews. What people were doing was if they didn't like a movie, if you saw a movie and you're like, eh, I don't like that. It's a remake of a movie I liked as a kid. And you go and you give it a bad review. You didn't even see it, whatever. Now they're making <laughs> to to leave a user review that counts toward a rating. You don't have to prove that you bought the ticket. The only issue is... It only counts, they can only verify one's purchases made through Fandango, which happens to own Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe feels like a little bit of a bait and switch. And then I'll leave, uh, I guess, on this. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the website GitHub. It's popular amongst developers, especially open source developers. You can basically go up there, host all of your open source code there, let you do it for free. They have some paid services, but they've introduced a Patreon system now, so you can you like a developer you can sign up to give them money every month or every contribution or something like that and a lot of people are upset about it because it kind of disrupts some of the dynamics of you know kind of the spirit of open source software is i'm doing this to help out this project or i'm doing this um and then i'm going to sell services on top of it or something like that and i'm interested to see if this will in fact uh be disruptive or anything like that but Unfortunately, we're just about out of time here on Weekly Tech News Hour. We'll be back next Monday here on WRUW from 1 to 2 p.m. running down the week's worth of tech news. It's been an absolute pleasure. Like I said, subscribe to the podcast uh, if you want to hear it there or just tune in your radio constantly to WRUW and wait until 1 to 2 p.m. on Mondays to listen. Until, though, the next time we meet, I have to let you know that you should have a super sparkly day. Take care, everybody. Bye now.